Hi, I'm Kara Oakleaf. And I'm Susie Rigdon. Welcome to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. This season, which is part of Fall for the Book's 25th anniversary celebration, we're sitting down with writers from across the genre spectrum. To hear all of our episodes, subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. So Susie, today we're talking to Katie Borum, and she's got a book called The Revolution Will Be Hilarious. Um, it's about kind of the intersection between comedy and social activism, which was really interesting. But because we're kind of going to be talking about comedy today, I wanted to ask you if you had a really good, bad joke. Yes. What's and your I favorite? Abs- I absolutely did not write this, and I'm absolutely reading it off of a screenshot of on my phone. All right. Since, you know, we're based at George Mason, I went academic. I got a hen to regularly count her own eggs. She's a real mathema chicken. <laughs> <laughs> You're so welcome, terrible. world. <laughs> that's, the, it's, that's truly awful. <laughs> Thank you. I, I also went academic when I was looking for one. So so here's here's my bad English professor joke. Shakespeare walks into a bar and the bartender says, get out, you're barred. Aww. I I read one about a, a ham sandwich walking into a bar, but I'm going to leave the punchline up to the universe. Ooh, that's exciting. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> so, so, okay, well, we're going to talk to someone who's actually funny now, and we're really looking forward to, to hearing from her. Katie Borm is the author of The Revolution Will Be Hilarious, Comedy for Social Change and Civic Power. She's also the executive director of the Center for Media and Social Impact and an associate professor of communication at American University. Thank you so much for being here. We're excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you. So on the surface, comedy and activism may seem like unrelated or even opposing concepts, but can you talk about sort of your experience learning that they're actually very deeply connected? Yeah. Um, may I tell a story in addition to answering that question? Yes, that okay? please. Okay. So the first thing that I like to say about how comedy and social justice actually fit together is if you think about it, social justice work is inherently about seeing the status quo in a new way, in a way that can be disruptive, in a way that has different possibilities for moving forward and sort of reconstructing a world that you wish existed or building it in the first place. And so it really requires this lens of actually truly being able to see a situation or a state of affairs in a new way. It requires this kind of radical imagination. And when we think about comedy, uh, I'll drop a little science on your listeners early. When we think about comedy, the actual science of why it is that we laugh when we hear something funny or a good joke is because it is this kind of incongruity that comedy provides. So just to look at joke structure just really quickly, although not always to be funny or jokes, as we know, but um, when we laugh at a joke, it's because a comedian has set something up, has has made some reference to like, you know how this is always the way things are, right? Like set up a sort of cultural known. And then uh, the punchline is when the comedian says something wildly unexpected that in fact is like the absurdest take on it. Well, that incongruity is in fact the new way of seeing. And it is this kind of radical imagination. So I always like to think, you know, conceptually and in practice, these two pursuits, making someone laugh and making someone see the world differently and strive for it, 
are actually deeply related, at least in the way that I think about them. So a story about how I really came to learn and to think about these topics together is, um, so I, I like to say I come by the comedy work, honestly. I worked for Norman Lear, the legendary comedy producer and philanthropist and activist for almost a decade in Los Angeles. And for anyone who does not know who Norman Lear is, I always say, Google him later, not now, because right now you're listening to us. But uh, he's a legendary TV producer who's kind of credited as being one of the most important progenitors of the idea that we can really talk about deep things that are happening in our world and in our families and in our civil rights and our human rights, that we can talk about those things in a way that can sometimes be a little easier when we come at it through hum humor for lots of different reasons that the book goes into. But I've always been inspired by that idea. And when I was working for Norman, we were working on lots of different projects that engaged the entertainment industry and comedy people and other artists talking about serious issues that really mattered. So that kind of practice and thought process as a producer person, in addition to being a scholar, always, you know, from my formative professional years, like really lived in my brain and also my soul because I've always been a funny person. I'm not like a joke teller, but I'm kind of a funny professor. <laughs> so working for someone who really understood how that worked really made sense for my personality and kind of helped me deepen it. So years later, years after working for Norman, I was working on a series of documentaries that were looking at global development topics, like progress toward the Millennium Development Goals. Okay, already everybody that heard that was already like, I'm a little bored, right? <laughs> this is part of the story. So uh, the Millennium Development Goals, um, also look those up later for pe people who are listening who are not like public health or anti-poverty people. It's basically the, the world's pact to alleviate the greatest suffering in the world that comes from issues like chronic malnutrition and illness and maternal health and, and you know what we call a writ large as uh, global development. So we're working on this series of documentary projects, uh, a group of producers and I, uh, years ago, and we kind of realized and wondered, you know, what if the only people that are watching our serious stuff are the same people who are already thinking about these issues? And, you know, now you know I have a backstory that includes this sort of wacky comedy work or, you know, producing and philanthropy with Norman Lear. So we got to talking and we came up with this idea, um, a group of uh, producers and the directors of a film that eventually became called Stand Up Planet. The directors are um, David Monroe and Chandra Castleton. And so we landed on this, this sort of experiment of trying to use comedy to actually interrogate these issues in a different way. So the film is called Stand Up Planet, and it was starring uh, Hassan Minaj way before he begot, became famous. And basically, the kind of logline is um, stand-up comedian from the United States goes in search of the funniest stand-up comedy in the developing world and follows their jokes into the social issues of their lives. So that was H Hassan's journey. 
And then I got funding to do, a, a well, stepping back and then I'll, I'll kind of wrap it up. We really wanted to know when people watch something like that and they experience comedy that's designed to welcome people into topics that are really inherently complicated, difficult, super sad, and once again, complicated. How can you possibly cut through that and get people to pay attention? So we really wanted to know what happened to audiences when they experienced this kind of treatment of a serious issue versus a sort of standard, you know, long form journalistic piece in a, a sort of mode that we would expect. So um, the very first funding that we got to do this work through the organization that I run, the Center for Media and Social Impact at AU, was in 2013. So this is now a decade long exploration. And basically, we found that the comedy was really impactful in lots of cool ways. I will not break it down here because we're talking about the book. But it led me to create this massive research agenda because I sat back and I thought of all the work that I have done at the intersection of media and social change, including my research, writing, documentary work, teaching, why was it that more human rights and civil society organizations and philanthropies, why were they not turning to comedians like all the time or even sometimes when comedy is what we remember and talk about and share with people? Why are we not actually taking that seriously? So I wanted to ask and answer that question through a big research agenda and a lot of that work finally arrived in the book that we're talking about today, The Revolution Will Be Hilarious, where I write about not only the science and the research about why comedy is so meaningful when it comes to thinking about social progress in a positive way, but also what does it actually look like in practice to try to put so, some of those principles into place. So the book is partially ethnographic, and I'm hoping you'll ask me a question about that later because I do like talking about that. And uh, But it's also a lot of research about comedy. But really it came from my own impatience and real curiosity about why are we not thinking about comedy intentionally when we think about big efforts to make the world more just and equitable and kind to be reductive. That's really a fantastic story. I, I I love this idea of uh, of these all being ways that you invite people to see things in a new way. I I, I want to go right into what you want to talk about because you talked to, talked about this the book being an ethnography. So 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 tell us a little bit more about that and and approaching it that, from that way. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much for that great question, Kara. I'm glad we <laughs> thought about it together. Well, the book is not totally ethnographic, so but uh, but it is a, a lot. So. So I just told you all the journey of this um, sort of research agenda that led to lots of like talks and um, it led to grants and things like that. I just made that all sound like that just magically happens, by the way, as you know, that's not, <laughs> it's a lot of hard work. But in the course of all of that, I started to find collaborators who wanted to produce comedy with human rights organizations and we're really interested in taking the research about how comedy works for social change, which, by the way, comes from 
a lot of different scholars, uh, a lot of their work that I've synthesized, but a lot of my own original research as well. But uh, I found collaborators that really wanted to help put that into practice, which is very exciting for me because I am such an easily bored person that I can never decide on just one thing for my job. So that's why I am a media producer and a book author and, you know, now a comedy show producer, by the way. So um, because of all of that, I thought, oh, I too would like to produce the comedy that actually experiments with these ideas of like, if I'm saying, if the premise of the book is, hey, civil society, humanitarian organizations writ large, why don't you take comedy seriously? Because it works in these 17 ways that I document in the book. So what does it mean when we actually take those principles and invite human rights organizations to come collaborate with professional comedians and actually really make comedy together? Does this actually hold up? Do people actually use the comedy in particular ways? So uh, the parts of the book that are ethnographic are, and it's really the second half of the book uh, where we were doing this work, a lot of other folks, um, principally my colleague and friend, Bethany Hall, who runs the comedy programs with me at the Center for Media and Social Impact, we set out to really co-create comedy with human rights organizations. And so I, you know, I started this book a while ago in the, right before the pandemic, I wrote the proposal and then it was accepted. So by the way, writing a comedy book during the pandemic, 10 out of 10, highly recommend. <laughs> it's the best, it's the best, I recommend it. Uh, if this happens again, oh my God. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. <laughs> Knock on wood. But it really kept me afloat. But um, so yes, yeah, so the parts that are ethnographic, I, I couldn't, I didn't quite know that in advance. One of the things that's fun to say to you too, because you are book lovers, um, just you adore books. Um, and that's why you have this podcast and the festival. What I love to say about writing books is that you don't totally know what the book is going to become until you're right in the middle of it. And I always like to say to other aspiring book authors, if you feel like you already think it's only this one thing and you don't have space for it to grow as you're writing it, don't think you're doing it right. You have to listen to it. It's a piece of art. It's going to talk to you a little bit. So I started out writing the book just about the, the sort of science and research about comedy. And then I thought, oh, well, how am I going to write about the inner workings of actually making this work unless I'm sometimes in it, like directing the work? So that, uh, you know, we wrote about a project. Oh, I like how I just said we. Is that a thing that women do? I wrote the book. <laughs> um, oh my God, that's horrible. I wrote the book. Uh, I wrote about a project with an incredible uh, Native American rights organization, another chapter about working with an organization that is working at the intersection of climate justice and racial justice, another body of work with an incredible comedian. Well, I'll, I'll hold that one back. Uh, another chapter about... Um, racial justice in the deep South. So the ethnography pieces, I guess that are, I don't know how y'all are going to edit that. I'm so sorry. That was super long-winded, but writing ethnographically is so fun for me. And I haven't done it in a book yet, which is interesting because some of my favorite books are sociology books that specifically use ethnographic techniques. 
And now I'm trying to think what other interesting work I can do in the world just so I can write ethnographically uh, on another topic. And hopefully you can do that not during a second pandemic, perhaps. Oh my God, I know. I just <laughs> said to, I know, I know, exactly. So, you know, you, you've laid out so many different organizations you work with, some, some absolute greats um, in the field. And I'm really curious if you have a favorite memory of somebody's joke, and I'm going to ask you about bad jokes later, but, you know, favorite memory of a joke or a powerful comedic moment that really has stuck with you throughout all your experiences? Oh, wow. What a great question. You know what? I have had, well, I will answer that and start by saying one thing that I wrote in the preface to the book, which is meaningful again, because we're also geeking out about books. So one day I was sitting around working on this book and a preface just came to me. I just thought, oh, I have to write this preface. And I know everyone's going to run out and buy the book now that I'm explaining the preface. But I felt like I had to explain two things. One, who am I in all of this? Am I just a scholar who found comedy as something to write about? There's something in my spirit that compels it. And I also felt like I wanted to write a little bit of a love letter to comedy people. So the two things that I wrote in the preface were, um, I start with how uh, I was kind of a an unruly little kid and I was sort of a class clown for my whole life. And I wrote about being silly in high school and my government teacher said I could not make a career out of that. I don't know if that's true. And then uh, later that you, and this is true to this day, you can't sit by me at meetings because I will find ways to be disruptive and silly. So there's also something about me that understood comedy people, even though I'm not a professional humorist. But getting to the comedy people, to answer your question, Susie, I have learned so much by working with comedy people. I really, as a human, I've learned so much because as I wrote in the preface, they're so free with their human failures and vulnerabilities and very easily, you know, I mean, making comedy is a really, really difficult art form. It requires, a, it really, truly requires a lot of failure. I know that we all say that in some industries. I don't know if we totally mean it. You know what I mean? But comedians really mean it because if you're not landing the joke right away, you have to tell it 20 different ways before you get the laugh, before you abandon the joke. And by that point, you've really worked on it for a long time. So comedy people are so open and free and very supportive of one another, very kind to one another. And, and the most important thing is they can literally take the dumbest idea ever and five iterations of yes and later, it becomes the kernel of something that's great and funny. But along the way, it has to be either like offensive or dumb or wildly off topic. And then it becomes something amazing. And I have never been around of all the artistic practices that I'm part of, book writing, you know, other forms of writing, documentary filmmaking. Comedy is unique and comedians are unique in that particular approach. Maybe they're like jazz musicians. 
but that's why Susie it's uh I don't know if I have one I, I have one kind of funny story that I can share but I just have been so enriched by comedy people and their willingness to embrace terrible stuff on the way to making something great so that so one moment that I really liked out of many was this idea of sort of flipping the switch on what we talk about and think about when we think about representation of particular groups and communities in media portrayals a lot of my work at the intersection of entertainment and social change or entertainment and human rights depending on the term you like better what I think and work on a lot is thinking about communities and groups of people who have either been neglected, marginalized, dehumanized, not seen fully, not seen at all. And that's many of us. That's women. That's people of color. That's many people in the queer community, the disability community, on and on. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that and thinking about how my comedy work and the comedy work that I write about is meant to empower and lift up those voices and stories and realities that we don't hear from enough in sort of the mainstay of entertainment culture. So a kind of really fun flip on that, and this is what great comedy does, it sort of flips your perspective. So my colleague Bethany and I had convened a group of comedians to work with Crystal Echohawk, who is one of the most important indigenous activist leaders of our time. She runs an organization called Illuminative, which is dealing with the continuous invisibility and dehumanization of Native people in cultural portrayals and in policy and, and you know, all, all, all forms of uh, lived experience. And so we together created this comedy writer's room that was um, this really unique composition. It was sort of half native comedy writers and performers and producers and half non-native folks. So it was really a mix. And we ran this comedy writers room for a week to co-create comedy together about indigenous rights and invisibility issues. We ran this together on, on native land, obviously everybody's on native land, but on a native reservation in Oklahoma, which was already a really special setting to do this work. And at one point we were, we were going on, we, you know, we were spending like two days talking about native representation in order to get to the kernel of truth about that. You have to hear a lot of facts and information. Crystal invited in a lot of important leaders to talk to our comedians who didn't know anything. And our native comedians who were sort of also participating, obviously fully explaining things and generating ideas. So we're in the middle of all of this. And there's one comedian, one of the Native comedians is named Ryan Redcorn. He's one of the writers on the Peabody award-winning show Reservation Dogs now. And Ryan Redcorn said, oh, and and uh, there was one of our non-Native comedians is a very funny guy named Sebastian Canelli from Staten Island. This is meaningful to this story because Sebastian has a very specific accent he very proudly represents Staten Island. He's super loud. He is the funniest person. And, and so he was, one of our exercises was sharing characters in your life that inspire you in certain kind of ways so we could start to develop real characters to, together. And, uh, and he had told all these stories about these truly like characters in Staten Island where he's from. 
Anna was, you know, going on and on. There's Uncle Rocky. I'm not going to do his accent because that would be insane. But and then in the middle of it, and then, you know, Ryan Redcorn sharing some stuff. And then Ryan says, we're going around and talking about the show ideas that can be generated from this character work or whatever. And Ryan Redcorn says, you know what I've mostly learned from this writer's room is that we definitely need more shows that represent Staten Island properly because we do not feel like Staten Island is getting proper representation of what would it look like if they were represented, not just as the hero, but sometimes the villain. <laughs> I mean, it just went on and on. It was so funny. And it was so, it was hilarious because also, you know, Sebastian, of course, was laughing harder than anybody, and we were just dying. But it was such a fun take on this idea of you know we're here to do this work you know in solidarity with our um, native colleagues and friends and Ryan's sort of saying like well also what if we look at it this other way it was very very funny and it was kind of a a flip of the switch but there you know there's just so many moments and I'll think of them later when we're not even talking <laughs> that's only one that's an incredible story you know and it and it gets to like a lot of the things you're talking about in this book you, you talk a lot about the idea of, of building narrative power for marginalized mm -hmm. people and you know as you were talking about you said you had a lot of people involved in this that were that were sort of novices to yeah to, to the comedy world so um for people who don't already have a foot in either the activist world or the comedy world and are interested in in kind of getting involved what what advice do you have for them Ooh. Um, well, so just um, to kind of explain this idea of, of narrative power and sort of mm -hmm. cultural power briefly, it really is the idea just to grossly simplify because quite a lot of the book, as you mentioned, kind of defines that and explains what we mean and what that work means. So I'll just explain it so that I can give the proper advice. Um, narrative power or culture, cultural power is really the idea that for many, many decades, if we're only looking at the dawn of sort of screen-based entertainment, so film and television, so, you know, many decades, there is a structural system in place that has favored particular kinds of portrayals and lived experiences as not only the ones that are valid, but the ones that are seen at all. So, you know, back in the early days of television, I will not do a whole television history, but the you know early days of sitcoms and you know dramas you know 50s and 60s and even into the 70s the sort of dominant structure was the white heteronormative family you know a husband and a wife and a couple of kids and as Norman Lear likes to say like the worst thing that happened was that the roast got burned and the boss is coming to dinner that's a totally a Norman Lear thing. I just stole it right from it, but I did a tribute. And so there, was, there wasn't much to sort of complicate or agitate that idea. And, and so if you looked at that portrayal and you happened to be in a structure like that, I guess you probably felt normal and seen, but I would ask you both, who was in a completely happy, harmonious family that was built that way, right? Like didn't every family have complications and challenges and, you know, an uncle that was, you know, having trouble or whatever, right? So if we extend that and we think about, you know, for decades, the portrayal of women in very stereotypical 
and very limited gender roles and, you know, doing the housework and not having jobs. And if we think about portrayals of people of color in particularly dehumanizing ways, we could go on and on, right? Queer folks, we uh, disability community almost never seen at all, right? Mm -hmm. So if you take that as the big cultural portrait of what our country is made of and what voices and stories matter, if you are not in that heterosexual, you know, nuclear family, you might think, is something wrong? Do where do I see myself? Where do I fit? Where are the examples of me? What do I aspire to? So the absence and lack of that representation is one factor. And then the other factor is if you manage to only see one example of yourself, that one example of yourself has to hold everything, right? So when Mary Tyler Moore came around, everybody Google that later if you're under age 42, Mary Tyler Moore was like, had a job. She was a lady with a job. So people are like, oh, look, a lady with a job, but she had to be perfect because she was like the only lady with a job on, on TV. So it's a lot to hold. So cultural and narrative power is the idea that there must be a fuller tapestry tapestry of stories and realities and banalities and flaws that we get to see. And comedy is one of the ways that we actually get to see people in their full lived, flawed, hilarious humanity. And when we can see people being you know, making mistakes, you know, having a bad day, not being good at stuff or whatever, right? Flawed humans. That's where we begin to see one another as sort of equal humans instead of this idea of sort of pity or your community is not like mine, so I don't understand you at all. So when it comes down to people that are interested in working in that kind of space, um, as I as I discuss in the first chapter of this book, there's this really interesting evolution and in intersection between the changing entertainment industry and the advent of streaming and social media that has had to pay attention to different audiences because audiences are now vocal. They were always vocal, but you couldn't see it necessarily. Hmm. And, um, and at the same time, activism has learned how to use the tactics of entertainment and how to be self-producing content creators themselves. We are well into that. We're like 20 years into that, right? So there is now a whole nucleus and group of people that are working within human rights organizations and within the entertainment industry to actually change that cultural portrait over time to green light more television shows that show a much wider spectrum of lives. And so it's a combination of strategy and creativity, but it's really changing both the entertainment industry and it's changing the way that many communities of people stand up and say, it's not just policies that affect our lives, but it's also how we see ourselves in entertainment. And as the entire book goes uh, on to talk about, comedy is a really special force within that because of its ability to grasp and point out the uncomfortable or the taboo or a really just make us play and be silly. Absolutely. And I mean, it's so interesting. You're starting with television and getting to social media. And I feel like social media just changes at warp speed. And, you know, we're mm -hmm. recording this in September and there's been big changes the last couple of months on a few platforms. And by yes. the time this airs, there will be some big changes. And it's so much to sort of 
keep up with and people are having to adapt. And I'm, I'm really sort of curious, you know, you, you mentioned in the book that about very rightfully the negative impact social media has on, you know, political discourse yeah, or just general discourse, but you're also talking about, you know, folks like Randy Rainbow who yes. built a whole platform on YouTube and it's, it's, you know, political commentary. It's very funny for those yeah. of you. That's another, you can just say, Google it, right? You know, musical <laughs> yes. theater meets political um, commentary. Yes. I'm really curious sort of about where you see this going. And, and like right now in September, 2023, are there any like memes or really sort of powerful trends that you're seeing on general social media sort of yeah. in the comedic terms? Yeah, thanks for that question. So one of the things sort of stepping back, really big picture, the last chapter of the book talks about this a little bit. I tried to get a little bit more serious than I had in the entire book when I opened the final chapter in the story about a group of Venezuelan comedians. And the reason I chose to do that is because for those who don't know, Venezuela has been in a bit of a political crisis for decades now. And through the course of sort of dictator, quasi-dictator, one to another, Venezuela's comedy has kind of gone away from its major broadcast networks. It has been, comedy has, any kind of politically critical comedy has basically been exiled from the country. It's really not allowed. So the reason that matters and thinking about the biggest big picture of that question is because when we think about the highest stakes for us, you know, in terms of democracy, avoiding conflict, global solidarity, et cetera, we always need social critics. We've always needed this. This is the original definition of comedy that comes from Aristotle is really talking about comedy, not just as a way to entertain ourselves, but as a way to have social critique about things that are so outrageous or wrong or grotesque that they deserve to be corrected. That's the original function of comedy. It's a societal function. So we need comedy as social critique in the same way that we need we need journalism, we need open forms of expression, we need books and literature, we need to imagine the world and critique uh, what's wrong. So we, you know, open societies have always understood this, closed societies always understand that this is exactly how to shut that machine down, right? You shut down journalists, you shut down comedians, they're always number two, by the way, and you definitely shut down books and poets and artists, right? Because these are the people that are speaking truth to power because they are compelled in that way. So when I think about the social media of it all, although, you know, social media is, you know, both incredibly concerning, but there's no question that it is open space for many voices of dissent to communicate differently. So thinking about comedy, during the pandemic, which also coincided with the Trump years, actually a new genre of comedy was sort of quote unquote invented during that time frame. I do write about this in the book, but it even has a term. So during that shutdown, when comedians couldn't go anywhere, but there, there was so much confusion around COVID and misinformation. There was also misinformation coming from the White House. It didn't seem like the agencies were coordinated. It was scary. We all remember it, right? We didn't know where to get the information. 
So during that time frame, a lot of comedians who were shut down at home, like the rest of us, their tours have been stopped, TV stopped production. Com you know, many comedians started filming these comedic parody or character videos, sort of looking straight to camera and becoming characters or, you know, in the case of Sarah Cooper, sort of imitating the Trump press conferences and doing lip sync. And that came to be called front-facing comedy. Um, so what's exciting about that to me is that front-facing comedy really made stars out of a whole handful of comedians who then went on to do things like get writer's jobs on big comedy shows or have Netflix specials like the case of Sarah Cooper or go on tour the minute the, the, minute the pandemic let up. That's Randy Rainbow. So the reason that's all important is because that is still a place where comedians can do a kind of open expression social critique and talk about what's going on and talk about the state of affairs and talk about where there is absurdity and we need to look closer at things. So we that's really, really important. So when I think about the trends in social media and comedy, because that changed the entertainment industry really paid attention to comedians who were kind of born of social media during that time frame. It's changed the way a lot of the entertainment industry works, quite frankly, which I also read about in the book. So my hope is that at least here in the United States, you know, I can't speak uh, for every country in the world, but at least in the United States that we continue to understand that, you know, as flawed as social media platforms are, we really have to fight very hard to keep those as open and seemingly democratic as they can possibly be, because comedians are always going to find a way to use memes, to use front-facing comedy, to use parody and sketch. They are going to find a way to talk about and, and sort of point out issues that we need to be paying attention to. So that's my little soapbox moment. So I think that's a trend that is ongoing and I hope is one that we continue. You know, one of the other things you you were mentioning in there is the importance of of, of journalism. And I I, I kind of wanted to also ask you about another one of your books. Uh, you, you've also written a book called Story Movements, How Documentaries yes. Empower People and Inspire so Social Change. So going from comedy to documentary is a bit of a, yeah. a, a bit of a shift. But I was curious about, you know, your your experience of working with documentaries and studying documentaries. Oh, thank you for that, Kara. Well, if people could see us, they would see that I'm pointing to that book right behind me. Yes, uh, I love that book. So it's interesting. In my mind, documentary, this, this work is all connected, and I'll, I'll sort of connect the dots for you a little bit here. So I've worked for a long time in documentary work as well as a producer and as a scholar, and I wrote a book about documentary, as you pointed out. And to me, I write about a very specific kind of documentary practice and mode, which is uh, independent documentary filmmaking, which is made largely outside of the confines of a particular employing organization. So outside of a newsroom that pays your paycheck or outside of an entertainment network that pays your paycheck. It's so important that we, so uh, just to step back, that is independent media writ large, and we really need it in the same way that I would argue in the same passionate way uh, about comedy. Comedy that's produced and finally makes it to the marketplace only arrives there because an independent artist, i.e. a comedian, has really worked on it on their own for a while. And generally speaking, the pathway to 
marketplace success so that we ever see anyone on screen, they have to work it at one comedy club after another, one show after another. They have to get the laugh to be invited back, then to be the headliner, to, then to tour. And this is how TV writers and performers are generally hired. This is how they make it in. But they start, but they, but the kernel of it is they're independent and they, and their material is wacky and that's how it moves on. So um, documentary is equally important in this regard, this kind of documentary, because, you know, documentary has a long history, this particular kind of documentary as being a form of journalistic cinema that has traditionally been produced outside of formal media making institutions, which is really important when we're talking about the same equation that I've been talking about with you all for a while, which is speaking truth to power and pointing out inconvenient truths that need to be told. And so documentaries actually work in similar ways. I would say they employ different emotional appeals often than comedy does. But the point that connects them both together is this sort of radically open freedom of expression and free speech and the ability to point out institutions of power and corruption of power wherever it may reside and how important it is for us as a culture to always have those voices that are available because there are even some things you know sometimes journalists and independent documentary filmmaker or I'm sorry sometimes comedians and independent documentary storytellers are saying things that sometimes even journalists, sort of working journalists can't say. I'm not pitting journalism against these forces. I'm saying that all of these cultural forces come together in a kind of composite of helping us be alert, mobilized, and, you know, citizens and people who feel some kind of efficacy that we have something to say about the not only the culture we live in now, but the one that we really want to create moving forward. I hope that answered the question. I don't know. It, yeah, it absolutely did. I, I I just think it was really when we were first thinking about this, we were, um, and Susie and I were kind of like talking about these books. We were like, comedy and documentaries like they feel it would be in such opposition but like you're saying like these are all kind of forms of media that are like asking us to look at things in a completely different way and reimagine things and i, I it's been really exciting hearing how you see those impacts and 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 all of those connections yeah and i, I would say the other thing that connects those two ideas although i will tell you that sometimes i i tell my documentary friends that they should try to use comedy more i think that would be <laughs> a good idea. Someday I will really officially bring that together in some kind of like a giant workshop. But um, the other thing that unites those ideas is, so I work a lot with documentary people and I work with a lot with comedy people. And what I love about them both is that at some level, both of these groups of people are really artistically fearless. They're really daring and willing to, like you said, Kara, willing to see things differently and kind of go for it. So I maybe I'm just attracted to people that are, you know, uh, I guess fearless and and uh, and kind of wild. <laughs> I guess maybe that's true. Those, those are good people. Yeah. 
Well, Katie, thank you so much for being here. And speaking of being fearless and speaking of, you know, testing out material, uh, we wanted to end by asking you to tell us your best bad joke, please. Okay. I am very excited about this request. And I will note to your listeners that I only found out about this bad joke telling right when we got on together. So I didn't have a chance to really remember <laughs> exactly how to tell it. So I'm probably going to mess it up. But uh, okay. So one thing to know about me is that I love puns and bad dad jokes. I do love them. So I co-created something called the Yes And Laughter Lab. And it was originally in our minds, my uh, the guy I co-created it with named Mick Moore, we were coming up with names for this thing that we created. And originally we, we just called it the Yes And Lab. And then I said, if we just add Laughter Lab, then it can always be y'all, which is both gender inclusive and friendly. So that's how much I love puns. So like literally invented a name so that I could giggle <laughs> at it for a million years. Um, by the way, Mick Moore is a, is a native New Yorker. And I think his skin crawls every time I go crazy with the y'all thing. Cause I'm from the South. I love anyway, it. Okay. Here's my bad joke. Okay. A string walks into a bar and the bartender says, uh, okay, so he walks into the bar with another string, and the bartender says, hey, are you a string? And he says, oh, maybe, and the bartender says, you know, we don't serve your kind here, and so he, he goes out, and um, he kind of creates a different configuration, and he comes back in, and the bartender says, wait a minute, are you a string? I feel like I just saw you. He's like, ah, oh, yes. And he said, told you, told you, man. Now I'm really embellishing. We don't serve, we don't serve your, your kind here. We don't serve strings. String goes out. He configures himself in a different way. Comes back in a third time. And this time he is, uh, he's like tied up. And the bartender says, hey, are you a string? And he goes, Oh, because we don't serve your kind here. And he says, nope, I'm afraid not. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst joke ever. Isn't it the worst? I it's love fabulous. it. I it's love it. Fabulous. You are gonna, <laughs> I know that you are going to tell that joke at a party this weekend. I don't even know when I heard it, but it did make me laugh. And I do, I don't, it was like the worst bad joke that lives in my head. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even tell it the right way, but whatever. It's funny. It still worked. It still worked. Thank you so much, Katie. It's been so much fun talking with you today. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I love your work and I'm really excited for people to think about comedy in a different way. The Thought for the Book podcast is produced by Jordan Bostick as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org.